Good morning. My name is Wes McCann. I'm senior pastor and one of the elders here at Cross Point Baptist Church. I want to again welcome you and thank you for being here. Uh, Father's Day is a is for me a, a sweet day and a hard day, um, as some of you know. I, I did not grow up uh, with my father in the household, and so, but I'm just constantly on Father's Day reminded of how God was so gracious and kind to me throughout my life. I remember a person said when I was young, when my father left, that because Wes doesn't have a father in the home, he will grow up, and by the age of 16, he will be on drugs and in jail. Thankfully, neither of those happened. I probably should be in jail for many other reasons, um, but not for those reasons. And uh, I attribute it to God's grace for men in the church and in my life that stepped in and filled a void. Um, So... I'm just super thankful for God's grace on Father's Day that men who were not my biological father who came and they instructed me and they taught me and they loved me and they took me on hunting and fishing and they came and watched my baseball games, my football games and they had no they hadn't they had no obligation but it was Deacons and Sunday school teachers and pastors and fathers of my friends who stepped in. And I'm thankful for all the churches that I've been in, whether as a child or as a pastor, where men have continued to step in. And I'm thankful to have, uh, even in this room today, my father-in-law who has stepped into that void. So I'm just so glad and thankful to the Lord that, that he uses people and men in people's lives to change them. I would just say to the men in this church, your investment is not in vain. Brothers, your investment's not in vain. Let me be a testimony to you. Men who in my congregation as a kid said, he's not my biological kid, but I will take him up. So don't ever ever believe that what you do for a kid who's not your kid will not will be just for naught. It could radically transform their life for the gospel. So please, men, be good fathers to your biological children and to your non-biological children. Thank you, dads. Thank you. We come to the place in Exodus 24, and uh, if you would, turn in your Bibles there to Exodus 24, and that's where we'll be at today. If you're a guest here, we've been working our way through the book of Exodus. It is a long journey, Uh, but next week it will start speeding up, and I would just encourage you like I did last week. We're about to get to the tabernacle instructions in Exodus 25. Here's what I need you to do. I need you to go read 25 through 40, the rest of the book. Because there's a lot going on in those chapters that have to deal with basins and altars and, and uh, instruction and construction. And uh, Chance and I are going to be preaching through this. It's going to be hard for us to encapsulate everything that's going on in these chapters. So take some time this week, each night, you know, read it out you know, to your family, to, to out loud, so you can get a good grasp and handle on what's going on. And so this is the last chapter that we'll kind of be dealing with it just like this, isolated. The next few chapters that we'll be dealing with the tabernacle will kind of be filled disjointed, but that's why we need you to read those. 
So, Exodus 24, once you've found your place there in Exodus 24, if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Exodus 24 says this, Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his seat, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stones, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for... Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Let's pray. God, your word is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces through the joints and the marrow, God, exposing our hearts and uh, the inner workings within us. And I pray that you would do that this morning to us, God, by your spirit at work through your word. Convict us of sin. Let us run to Christ, God. And that I, I continue to pray for fathers in this room who, who need encouragement, who need, who need endurance. Give it to us, O oh God, this morning through your word and by your spirit. And that, God, that we would go out from this place, having heard what you have said, that we would, with one unitary voice, said, we will be obedient, God. We will obey all that you have said. And that, God, we would go on mission to make disciples of all nations for the good of all people and for the glory of God. Lord, I pray that that would be our our, be our response today. We will be obedient to whatever you have said. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. I, um, I, just by a raise of hands, anybody in the medical profession, maybe a nurse or a doctor, would you just mind raising your hand for a second so we can acknowledge you? We got one on the back row who's refusing. So we got Miss Pat here. And, and I, I was talking with Gaden Landry about this this morning, 
And uh, because she, you know, she's also in the medical profession. We have, we have a few over here, actually. And so uh, just the, the significance and just the work that they do, so thankful for our medical professionals and all that they do. And it's a significant thing to do that, right? And uh, I was talking with Gaden and, uh, about pinning ceremonies. Anybody, did anybody go through a pinning ceremony? Anybody? No? Nobody in here? Okay. Anybody sat through one? couple people, yeah. It's a significant event where a medical professional, they get their pin, they're pinned, and it's kind of signifying that they've gotten through one stage of the process, and now they're entering into a new stage, right? Is that they're completed the education part, and that this pinning ceremony is an initiation into the profession itself. One stage ends and a new stage begins. And this is what we're experiencing here in Exodus 24, is what we've seen from 19 through 23 is that God has given the stipulations and kind of parameters for their relationship. How God and Israel are going to interact with one another in this relationship. And then Exodus 24 is like the pinning ceremony in some sense. Where God ratifies the relationship, confirms it with Israel and says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And now they go off. And so that's where we've gotten at today in Exodus 24. Is that it's like a pinning ceremony saying, now is the first step in this relationship as me being your God and you being my people. And so today we're going to look at three points just from here. And it all has to do with God's holiness and being the Holy One. So the first point is this, is that it's going to talk about approaching the Holy, that being God. Second, second is going to be about covenanting with the Holy and third is beholding the holy. That's all the experiences that they're going to go through in this chapter. Is that the people are going to approach God. The people are going to covenant with God. And some of the people are going to behold God themselves. So let's look at this in the first two verses. Approaching the holy. Approaching God. Anybody, I know you've probably seen signs on doors. Maybe even when you go into uh, hospitals. Authorized personnel only, right? Meaning you, there's security restrictions, right? Only certain people can go that far. And isn't it so tempting to want to go behind the door? What's going on back there, right? Well, why is it, why is it only authorized personnel only? Why, why can't anybody just walk behind that door, right? But there's serious matters. There's security matters that only certain people can go behind those places, right? You have to have some type of security clearance, right? And so certain areas are off limits to certain individuals. And this is what God is saying here, just in the first two verses of Exodus 24, is that God is giving restrictions on who and how people can approach Him. Who can approach Him and how they are to approach Him as He is on this mountain with them. So just look at this in all of 24 if you want to, if you're a person who marks in your Bible, go and mark how many times come up or come near or went up is here. It's over and over again. Come up, come near, do not come near, come up, come up, come up, went up, went up, right? All over this is about this language of went up, come up, come near. It's about approach. It's about approaching God. Who can and who can't approach God? So God is very God is very serious and also very concerned with Israel's approach to him. Right? And so the majority of what you'll see here, the majority of the people are at the bottom of the mountain. 
They're not even going up on the mountain at all. And then there are certain people who, a select few, who can go up a little bit on the mountain to worship the Lord from afar. That's what he says in verse 1. Is that Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, the 70 elders of Israel, they, they come and they worship from afar. So they're, they're given a little bit more proximity to God. And then there's Moses, who is told that he's the only one that can come near to the Lord, right? And this is just signaling that Moses is distinct from everybody else, right? In the sense that God has appointed him to be Israel's mediator between God and the people, right? And so approaching God is a serious issue for Israel. It's a serious issue. And so, because one cannot approach God in any way, at any time, and he can't be approached just by anyone. I mean, you think about you know, Leviticus 10 with Nadab and Abihu. They offer strange fire to God. They go up in there. They offer strange fire thinking that God will do, allow whatever. And what happens to them? Anybody know? They die, right? It's not a good story for Nadab and Abihu. You remember Uzzah in the ark in 2 Samuel 6? He thinks that he can go- grab the ark of the covenant because oh, it's just another piece of furniture that God has. What happens to him? Immediately he dies, right? So God is concerned with who approaches him, how, appro- how he's approached, because he can't just be approached just willy-nilly by anyone in anything. This is why he warns Israel in Exodus 19. He says, take care that you do not go up on the mountain to the edge of it. Don't even touch it, he says in Exodus 19.12. That's what he warns the people. Don't even touch the mountain, because whoever touches it shall die. That's how holy God is to even touch the place that he's dwelling on, right? And so this is where God's presence dwells is on this mountain. And so he's concerned with how they approach him. Only God who, it's only who God allows and appoints can approach his presence. And so you might be thinking like I am, well then who can approach God? Who can? Just like Chance read for us from Psalm 24.3, right? Who could approach God? Who could ascend this hill and come to the holy place? Who who can do that? Anybody want to raise their hand? Right? I think we would all say, none. There's not a one of us who meet these qualifications so perfectly, forever, perpetually, that we could possibly say, yeah, I think God would let me go up. Man, that sounds like pretty prideful and arrogant. No one can approach God. Who can draw near? I think what we would see is that none apart from Christ. No one can approach God apart from Christ. Hebrews 10, 19-22 says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of, anybody know? Jesus. By the blood of who? I mean, we don't have to be afraid to say Jesus in here. By the blood of who? Jesus. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We only through Christ can approach God. And we can do that with full assurance that we don't have to fear going into God's presence. 
that we would die like Israel would on the mountain. We have Christ, the blood, His blood, that has cleansed us and redeemed us. Who can draw near? No one on their own. Only those who are in Christ Jesus. And look, let me tell you this. If you came in here this morning and say, I am so far gone, Wes. There is no way. There's no way I could touch that holy mountain. Let me just tell you this. You are not so far gone that God could not save you through Christ Jesus. You are not so far gone. If you draw near to God through Christ, you will not be rejected. And you will not die. Hebrews 7.25 says this. Consequently, He is able to save the uttermost. Let me just say this. The uttermost. You think you're so far gone from God? You think there's no way that that great chasm can be basically transcended? Let me just tell you this. He can save even the uttermost. The uttermost person. Those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. You are not too far gone for God to save you. Not even the uttermost person. And let me just tell you this, is that we all need to come to this recognition. Well, why do I need to draw near to God? Because you are in great need. You are in great need. You need help. You need mercy. You need grace. You need forgiveness. This is why you draw near to God. Hebrews 4.16 Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. You know why you need to draw near to God, to His holy throne? Because you need grace. You need mercy. And can I get an amen? Do we need help? Do we need help? We do. So, why do you want to draw near to God? Because we need help. And maybe you're here this morning. You hear this command that you need to draw near to God. And you feel so far apart from God right now in your walk with Christ. You feel so a distance so deep in your soul that it can't be. There's no closeness that you can have with God. Let me say this for you, Christian. If you're feeling distance right now, if you're feeling such a great far proximity where you're feeling like this, there, I'm, I'm the song. Look, I'm the Psalm 24 guy. There's no way I could go up that hill. There's no way I could approach God. Let me just say this. James 4, 6 says, draw near to God, and He will draw near to who? You. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. He is not so far from you that He will not receive you. If you draw near to Him. So, Christian, this morning, if you feel distance from God, it's not because He wants to be distant from you. Here's the solution. If you feel distant from God, Draw near to God. Draw near to God. Through prayer, through faith, through reading. Draw near to Him. This is the Lord's instructions about how people are to approach Him in their relationship. And that this approach is then followed by a ratification or a confirmation of this relationship. And this is point number two. Covenanting with the holy. Covenanting with the holy. Does anybody get, like to go back and look at their uh, wedding pictures? Let me just tell you this. Here's a weird thing that I do. when I, I, I've come visit you in your homes and things like that. And uh, usually my question that I'll ask you is this. Can I see your wedding photos? And you know why I like to ask that? Because some of you don't have hair. Men. And I like to see what you look like with hair. And Because some, some of you guys, I can't even imagine with hair sometimes. Or these long beards, you know, what you look like. I just love seeing, I mean, same for me, I guess. But uh, 
I just love seeing what people like dress like back then. And you know, like they, we all had our different styles of tuxedos and dresses and things like that. So if I ever come to your house for coffee and I say, hey, pull out the wedding album, just, just know, I, I, it's, it's not because I'm trying to be creepy. Uh, I just like, I, I like to see, see those things. But you probably, I don't like me, you like to go look back at those wedding photos to see the tuxes, see your groomsmen, see your uh, bridesmaids, see you know, all the, you know, the music that you may have played, the guests that you may have had, and things like that. And so you kind of remember that wedding day and all that went on. And at, at all the different points, all the different facets and features and different elements of the wedding ceremony, all, ultimately they kind of culminate in one thing, the exchanging of the vows, right? It's where it all kind of culminates. All the preparation, all the, all the, all the, you know, the eating and the, and everything culminates there, where you're pledging yourself to your spouse, right? And then you give a, a symbol of your commitment to them, right? In a ring, right? And there's a very similar ceremony going on here in Exodus 24, is that the relationship between God and His people is being confirmed. It's being ratified right now. He saved them. He's instructed Israel. He's covenanting with them. And now he's ratifying it. And so the section begins by this. Look at verse 3. It's interesting. This happens twice. Is that Moses reads all the rules, all the laws before them. And do you know what they say? All with a unified voice. One voice say, all that the Lord has said, we will do. It says it again in verse 7. All that the Lord has said, we will do. We will be obedient. This is them, Israel, pledging their obedience to God. That they will serve Him. That they will worship Him. That they will love Him only. Right? They're entering into relationship with them. They are agreeing to the terms of the covenant. They are going to worship, love, and serve God. It's basically like their I do's, right? I do. Everything that has just been said, I do. I commit to that. Now, I know that in Israel's history, as we'll find out later in the chapters, is that Israel's commitment to I do right here in Exodus 24, it only takes about 10 chapters for them to say, huh, we made a commitment to one another? What about these idols? What about these golden calves here? I kind of want to worship them. It only takes 10 chapters for Israel to lose their zeal, to lose their passion, to lose their excitement for being committed to the Lord through a covenant. And man, maybe you feel some of this too, right? At first, maybe you remember when you first gave your life to Christ. You were zealous and passionate and so excited what God had done in you. But after a time, we renege on the commitment, right? As John says in Revelation 2.4, we forgot our first love really easily. Our zeal wanes. And maybe you're here this morning. You felt that. Yeah, I remember all those commitments I made to the Lord. I remember all the things that I pledged to Him, that I was going to serve Him only, and I was going to love Jesus and all these things, and I was going to tell other people about Him. I remember that zeal. But that, that was a young man's zeal. There's a lot of things that have happened between now and then. I'm a different person. Let me just tell you this. Is that God has commanded that we continually say, I will do all that you say. And I will be obedient. 
regardless of time, regardless of what happens in our lives. And so maybe this morning, you're here and you recognize this like Israel. I remember when I made those commitments to the Lord. I remember when I made those pledges to the Lord. I will do all that you say, Jesus. I will do everything that you say. You are my first love and I will never forsake you. Maybe this morning, I'm not going to have a recommitment service right here where I ask people to walk down the altar, recommit your life to Christ, sign this card, and then think, what I'm going to ask you is this. Will you this morning resolve to follow Jesus like you initially said you would do when you confessed Him as Lord? Will you resolve to say, I'm going to remember what I pledged and committed to the Lord years ago when I was 6, 10, 20, 30. I'm going to resolve to follow Him like I said, because Jesus is my Lord. And so the people say with one voice, this is what we're going to do. And then after they make their vows, Moses prepares for the ceremony, right? He builds the altar. He constructs the pillars, right? He offers sacrifices and offerings. And then he reads the book of the covenant. But one additional element is made to this covenant ceremony. Everything is sprinkled with blood. Anybody have that at their wedding? Everything, nothing like that? They sprinkle, nobody had like the pastor come out and you know, throw goat's blood everywhere all over people? Throw it on you, throw it on me. Maybe it's a drop wrong thing. But, um, but no, and blood is sprinkled everywhere over the altar, over the people, over the book of the covenant, everything. To say, what is happening here is very serious. And it's both of these parties, God and Israel, pledging themselves to one another through the sacrifice of blood. It's a serious endeavor. And we symbolize that to say, man, I'm going to buy this ring, this really expensive ring, right? I'm going to go to this jewelry store. I'm going to buy this ring. I'm going to, with fear and intrepidation, put the money down and get this ring, and then I'm going to go hide it in my drawer so I don't lose it, right? Any men have that situation? I got that ring into my hands that I bought for Myra. Like, I wanted to go bury it. Under, un, underground because I was so afraid that I'd lose it because I'd never, I mean I was 19 I'd never spent that much money in my life never spent that much money in my life but to buy something like that it was to say I'm serious about what I'm about to do I'm serious about this I wouldn't throw down that much money on something I just didn't care that much about and that's what's happening here, is that blood is symbolizing. There's a seriousness to the relationship that is being ratified right here, being confirmed. That blood is required for this matter. And thankfully in the new covenant, thankfully in Christ Jesus, He is the one who has shed His blood for us. He is the one who has sprinkled us clean. He is the one who has shed His blood so that relationship could be made. Because in order to have a covenant, you need blood, and Christ has shed His blood for us. Hebrews 9, 19-23 says this, For when every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Quoting Exodus 24 right here. And in the same way, he sprinkled with both, with both blood the tent and the vessels and the worship. Indeed, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without blood, the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of what? 
Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. That's why blood had to be brought here to ratify this covenant. And this is why Jesus can say when He takes the Last Supper with His disciples, take of you, drink, for this is the covenant. My blood, which is poured out for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. This covenant is made with Israel through blood, and so is the new covenant with us made. Not the blood of bulls and goats, but through the blood of Christ to show that He is serious about this relationship. The commitment has been made here. The covenant ceremony shows that both parties are, are called to faithfulness. And that Israel, and they're saying their I do's, and the blood being splattered everywhere is saying, both are to uphold their end of the bargain. Faithfulness to one another. God being faithful to Israel, Israel being faithful to God. Right? But unfortunately, as we've already said, Israel does not remain faithful to God. But brothers and sisters, would you agree with me? I am so thankful every single day of my life that God's faithfulness to me is not dependent on my faithfulness to Him. Every single day, I would say I am unfaithful to God in some area. I sin and I say I don't trust God. I don't love God like I should. My faithfulness, my faithfulness is fickle. But God's faithfulness to us is not dependent on our faithfulness to Him. Praise God. Second Timothy 2.13 says this, If we are faithless, He remains what? Faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. Regardless of our faithlessness, is that He will never change His end of the bargain. He will always uphold His end of the bargain. He will always remain faithful, because that's who He is to us. Praise God for wicked sinners like ourselves. And so after covenanting with the people through blood and sacrifice here, is now the camera kind of moves back to the men who have been given the honor and the privilege of embarking towards God's holy abode. So this is point number three. Beholding the holy. So God has shown them how they're to approach the holy. He's shown them what covenanting with the holy is like. And now, what it's like to behold the holy. Has anybody ever had backstage passes to a concert or something like that? Anybody want to raise their hand? Maybe you're embarrassed that you had backstage passes to a concert like that, right? But you, uh, you kind of know, you know, based on how much money you spend, where you're basically going to sit, right? So if, you, if you're going for the low-dollar cheap seats, right, you're probably going to be sitting mile high, right, where it looks like ants are on the stage, Right? Well, you spend a little bit more money, you get a little bit closer. A little bit more money, you get a little bit closer. A little bit more money, you get closer. Then you pay a lot of money, and you get maybe front row right seats. Or you pay a lot of money, and you get backstage passes where you get to see how the you get to see how the, 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 the just how everything works, right? How the sausage is made in some sense. So proximity, as you spend money, gets you closer and closer. Now, this doesn't have anything to do with money. But there is a similar sense of proximity for the people. The proximity of the Lord in Exodus 24 is this, is that Israel is at the foot of the mountain, right? They're at the foot. They can't even touch it. And then a select group of people are called to come closer to the mountain. That's Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders and Aaron. And then Moses, Moses, he gets backstage passes, right? He gets to behold the glory 
And so just look at this. In verse 9, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders, they went up. They went up and they had a unique experience with God that not all Israel was able to participate in. Look what happens. They beheld God and ate and drank on the mountain. Now, you might be saying this. How could they have seen God and still lived? He's so holy. His holiness cannot be in the presence of sin and unholiness, right? But it appears God has, for a moment, for a moment, allowed them to partially experience His glory. This is why he can say this in verse 11. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. Meaning, what would really probably happen is this. That they come to the edge of the mountain, they come up, they would die. His hand would be upon them. But for a moment, God is gracious and lets them glimpse, glimpse for a second and behold God. And that we're told in Exodus 33, 20, but he said, you cannot, God said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Well, look at these people. They don't, even, they don't get to see his face. What do they get to see? His what? His feet, right? Uh, they ain't, they ain't, they ain't, if they're going to get a glimpse, it ain't going to be of his face. It's going to be of his feet. Now, this is an experience like a vision like Ezekiel would have in Ezekiel 1, where describing this in human language, the glory that he has seen in this vision and trying to, trying to explain it through adequately through human language. But I think we would all say, God doesn't have a physical face. He doesn't have, it, <laughs> he doesn't have physical feet. He doesn't have hands. John 4.24 says that. God is spirit. Right? He doesn't have physical features. But this is the way that biblical authors are trying to communicate in their own language, though inadequate, to explain what they've experienced when they've beheld God. That's all that they can say to describe the vision that they've seen. And that they go even further, they, they're describing even the pavement, even the pavement of what he's standing on, right? He said, there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. Even the, the thing that he's standing on is significant. It's pointing to the one who's standing on it is glorious and majestic. It's kind of like the red carpet, rolling out the red carpet for people. I don't know about you, but nobody rolls out the red carpet for me. Anybody? Who do they roll the red carpet out for? Famous people, right? People who get out of limousines and stuff like that. They ain't rolling out carpet for people who get out of a 2011 Toyota Tundra. Right? But it's to show that the people who are walking on this red carpet are significant. They're famous. And so even the pavement that God is walking on shows that the person on it is glorious. He's mighty. He's majestic. He's holy. He's, he's none like you've ever seen. Right? And that this vision of God comes on the heels of the covenant ratification of them covenanting with one another to say, the relationship between God and Israel has changed. Is that now there's an intimacy that they get to experience with this God that they've covenanted with. This partial glimpse says, I am your God and you are my people. And church, look, you might be saying, man, I, w I just want this. 
I want this glimpse that they experienced. I want to behold God like they did. Let me just say this. You can. You can. You're like, how can, how can I do that? Look at Christ. Look at Christ. This is why Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. Look at Jesus. You want to behold God? Look at Him. And then one day, you will finally and fully be able to set your eyes beholding the glory. Matthew 5, 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? See God. Revelation 22, 4 says this, They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. You will. But now you can see God by looking at Christ. And one day you will see God fully and completely in all of His fullness. More than what Exodus 24 and Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu were able to experience. You will behold God fully and perfectly. But not only did they see God, what else did they do on that mountain? Why not? They ate and drank with God. They feasted. Celebrating, kind of commencing the relationship that they've just established. Confirming that they have a relationship. It's almost like a, it's like a wedding reception in some sense. That the vows have been made, the pledges to one another have been made, you've been given rings of Rings to symbolize that commitment. And now, go to the reception hall. Let's eat together and celebrate this relationship with one another. Right? The select group gets to experience this with the Lord. This feast with the Lord. And let me just tell you this, church. One day, we too will feast with the Lord. Can we do a little Bible journey just for a second? I don't ask you to turn in your Bibles a lot, but I think I need to right now. If you would turn to Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25 is picturing this day where we will have an experience with the Lord. Unlike any experience, earthly experience, that we have ever and will ever have here on this earth. Is that God will be on His holy mountain. And He will be with His people. And they will be doing something unique together. Isaiah is looking to the future for something. A day. Look at what it says in Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a what? A feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all the faces and the reproach of His people. He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in salvation. We are going to experience that feast that Isaiah is telling us. And in that feast, we will be eating and drinking with the Lord and saying, This is our God. We've been waiting on Him. Turn with me to Revelation 19 real quick. Revelation 19. Where we will see even a further picture of this great feast that we will experience with the Lord. Feasting with the Lord is a great theme in the Bible. It's significant. Even the disciples, they feast with Jesus Himself. But in Revelation 19, we're told that there's a great feast coming for all those who are in Christ Jesus. What we hear of the marriage supper of the Lamb. In Revelation 19, 
verse 6, it says this, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty pearls of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has been made herself ready. It was granted her, to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Look at what we're waiting for. A great feast that we're waiting for with the Lord. And until then, until then, until we experience this great feast that Isaiah 25 and Revelation 19 are talking about, we get to get a glimpse of that feast when we take the Lord's Supper together. When we take the bread and the cup, we celebrate until the Lord returns. So basically, we can say that it's an appetizer of what is to come. We're getting a little glimpse. When we take the bread and the cup together to say, there's coming a day when there will be a great feast for all of God's people and we will be with God. Can't you wait? Can't you long for that day? These people get to experience this with the Lord. But Moses is allowed further access. He goes up into the cloud, the cloud with the devouring fire, and the voice of the Lord calling out demonstrates that God's presence is there on that mountain. And Moses is able to experience the glory of the Lord. A glory of the Lord that will be experienced in the tabernacle, in the temple, and most ultimately in Christ Jesus. If you would, this is the last place I want to turn you to. Matthew 17. Matthew 17. It's that Moses has gone up on this mountain. And he is experiencing a backstage pass to the glory of the Lord. None like any have ever experienced. Seeing the glory of God, hearing His voice, the cloud that He is walking into, the, the devouring fire, all this saying that God is on this mountain. And ultimately, the glory of the Lord will be in the tabernacle. It will be in the temple. But in Matthew 17, it says here, that it's in Jesus. Listen to what it says. And just try and follow how this sounds so much like Exodus 24. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother. Okay, a select group, right? And led them up a high mountain. Where have you heard that before? Exodus 24. By themselves. And Christ was transfigured before them, and His face shone like the sun, and His clothes became white as light. Sounds pretty glorious to me, right? And behold, there appeared to them, who? Moses. Why is he there? And Elijah, talking with them, and Peter said, Jesus, Lord, it's good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright, What? A bright what? Cloud. Where have you heard cloud before? Overshadowing them. And a what? A voice from the what? Where have you heard that before? And he says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. They've just experienced some glory of the one who is on the mountain. And that's Jesus. And so you return to the question 
from Psalm 24.3. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? You return to Exodus 19.12. Anybody who touches the mountain will die. How can we approach the holy? How can we make a covenant with Him? How can we behold the glory? And on our own, none can. But thankfully, church, thankfully, the one on the top of the mountain, holy and set apart from the people, enclosed by the cloud, surrounded by lightning and thunder, who dwells in unapproachable light, who is majestic and glorious, he has come down in the person of Jesus Christ. The one on the mountain has come down. And what does it say he did in verse 7? But Jesus came, and he what? He touched them. They cannot touch the mountain, so the one on the mountain came down and touched them. He says, do not be afraid. And they saw Jesus only. The one on the mountain, in all glory and splendor and majesty, Jesus Christ, has come to us. How can you approach the Lord this morning? Only through faith in Christ. How can you covenant and commit to the Lord only through faith in Christ how can you behold the glory of the Lord only through faith in Christ and if you have experienced such glory then why would you want to keep that news to yourself if you've experienced the glory of the Lord and beheld it in the person of Jesus Christ 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God has shown the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. If you've experienced the glory of the Lord in Christ, we should fear and tremble, but we should tell and proclaim. Let's pray. God, we love you. And in Christ Jesus, we have experienced how majestic and glorious he is. I pray, Lord, that our life's mission would be to live for the glory of God and tell of the glory of God that we have experienced. That through Christ we can approach Him. That through Christ we can have a relationship with Him and covenant with Him. And through Christ we can behold His glory now and in the last day when we feast with You, O God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.